Well, good morning or afternoon, evening, whenever it is that you are listening to this. We had some uh, technical difficulties with the recording this morning, so here I am to re-record our sermon for today. I am excited to uh, continue tracking with the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. So if you do have your Bibles and want to follow along, you can open with me to Matthew chapter 5. The key verse for today is going to be Matthew 5 verse 6, which we'll read here in a moment. Uh, We live in a very health-conscious age uh, where there's nearly as many diets as there are types of food. Uh, And often, nutritionists try to capture the importance of food with this age-old saying, uh, you are what you eat. You are what you eat. Uh, The logic goes something like this. If all you eat are donuts and Twinkies, uh, then you're going to become a walking Twinkie. If all you eat is uh, lean red meat, Uh, then you're going to be nice and lean and cut. Uh, This principle, you are what you you eat, is true of nutrition. It can also uh, be carried into almost any appetite uh, that we have, whether physical, emotional, or spiritual. You become what you eat, what you desire, what you pursue, what you crave, what you love. You are what you love. If you crave the affirmation and respect of others, uh, you're going to become disingenuous, a person who wears a mask and maybe manipulates relationships to get more of what you want. If you crave freedom and autonomy more than anything else, the ability to do what you want, uh, you are going to become the type of person who's enslaved to personal uh, passions and preferences, whether they're healthy for you or not. If you crave comfort and financial stability and status more than anything, you're going to become the type of person who prioritizes your career and your work above your spouse, your kids, and your relationships. You are what you eat. And this formula, if you will, is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, God made us this way. Uh, He made us to be formed and transformed by who and what we love the most. And this morning, as we'll see in our next beatitude, uh, Jesus invites us into the blessing, the good life, the flourishing that is hungering and thirsting after him and his righteousness above all else. Matthew 5, 6, before I get there, let's read verses uh, 1 to 6 together. So seeing the crowd, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And here's our verse. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So, quick introduction here, Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We've been reading this kind of like the constitution of the kingdom of God, right? Jesus is the king. We've, Matthew's prepared us for this in chapters one to four. The king is here. The kingdom of heaven has been brought near by the king. The king is here and the king is speaking. And he's speaking about the nature, the, the culture, the character of his kingdom. 
And when we lean into the culture of his kingdom, when we take up these sort of ethical invitations to, to follow the king in this in this way, uh, in a way that's often upside down from the, the way of the world around us, uh, we will inherit uh, the, the blessings of the kingdom, the blessed life that we were made for. It's important to remember that, that these blessings are real, concrete, present tense realities. Uh, they're not just spiritualized. Uh, they're, they're not um, related to your stuff. They're not related to your circumstances. Um, they they are, are real uh, blessings of the abundant life, the flourishing life, the shalom that God has made you for, that, that only he can provide to your heart and your household. Uh, the, the kingdom of God is not just up there in heaven. It's not just out there in the future. It's available to our hearts and our homes now as we submit to the way of the king. And there's no better place to live than under the reign of a good king. And so here we have these blessings of the kingdom. And how does Jesus invite us into the good life of his kingdom this morning in a unique way? He does so through our bellies, through our appetites. Again, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, who desire, who crave righteousness, for they shall be satisfied or filled. They shall be full to the brim. So we've talked a little bit about the word blessing uh, that, that, that we are invited into, uh, this blessed life of the kingdom. Uh, and how do, we, how do we walk in this blessed life? Well, we hunger and thirst for righteousness. What is the object of our appetite? It's righteousness. What is that righteousness? What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Uh, the word in the Greek is dekaiosune, kind of a fun word to say. Dekaiosune, righteousness. It means rightness or, or perhaps wholeness. You could think integration, justice. Or really, the, it means the way things ought to be. And in this context, this word righteousness could mean, uh, I think, up to five things, five different things. Uh, or perhaps, as, as I'll suggest, it includes all five of these things in layers, all five of these forms of righteousness. Uh, we're talking about hunger this morning, so maybe think of it as like a five-layer cake. And the, the first layer, the most obvious layer, the one that's right here on the surface that Jesus is speaking of in this context is personal righteousness. Personal righteousness. That is your, your life of, of goodness, your, your life of, uh, of, of love and, and being morally upright in the world. If you have any background in church, this is likely how you uh, read the word righteousness at face value. We love to read through personal and moral categories first and foremost, which actually is not always helpful, but I think in, in this context, uh, it, it, it lines up. Uh, it seems that personal righteousness is at least partially in view as the same word shows up down there in verse 10. If you let your eyes drop down, you'll see in verse 10, Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Presumably your personal righteousness gets you in hot water with the world around you. And again, down in verse 20, we read, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So apparently there's this uh, form of personal righteousness that, that gets down to the heart, this heart level righteousness by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's not just a facade like the Pharisees. And so this would be the appetite for our hearts and our lives to be integrated with the ways of God's kingdom, that we would be morally upright from the inside out. And this righteousness reflects the promise of, of Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. 
He is like a tree planted by streams of water. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So satisfied, blessed will be those who crave personal righteousness. You look inside yourself, you see, you see sin, you see disintegration, you hate it, you look to Christ, you see his perfect example, you want to be more like him, and through, through time and habit and spiritual formation and the help of other brothers and sisters, you, you pursue personal righteousness. You want to be better. You want to be a better husband, a, a, a better wife, a better friend, a better church member, a better pastor. You crave personal righteousness that the world could interact with you and see your life and, and see a citizen of the kingdom of God that is, that is cutting with the grain of how God made things to be. Satisfied are those who crave personal righteousness. But when you read the rest of Matthew and on into the rest of the New Testament, this word righteousness takes on a fuller meaning. And so while it's possible that personal righteousness is the immediate context here, that doesn't rule out the, the broader context, which gives this, this idea of righteousness more layers. Jesus could have had in view, and I, I think that he did have in view based upon what he goes on to teach in the rest of Matthew. Um, additionally, this idea of imputed righteousness, imputed righteousness, that is right standing with God that we have been given as a gift. Uh, by Jesus who, who lived perfectly and, and righteously on our behalf. You can think of like a courtroom. We come in before a holy God. We have problems. We're screwed up. We rebel against him. We have broken his law. And he attributes the perfect life, the perfect record of Jesus to us that when a holy God looks at us, because of our faith in Christ, uh, he sees us as righteous. He sees us as perfect just as his son is perfect. And so we are accepted by God, not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of Christ's works. You get a lot of this in the book of Romans, which, which many uh, view to be kind of the primary interpretive grid for the rest of the Bible. Uh, it's there that we learn that no one is righteous, not even one. We also learn in Romans that a righteousness of God has been revealed uh, through faith apart from works, that what qualifies us to be right with God is not our own efforts, is not our own work, is not our own righteousness, but the righteousness of another, the righteousness of Christ. This righteousness reflects the promise of Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. So satisfied, blessed will be those who crave imputed righteousness that, that you look inside yourself and as you're combating sin and as you're walking to follow Jesus and pursuing righteousness, you always come up short. You realize that there's nothing that you can do to, to save yourself, to perfectly qualify you for the kingdom of heaven. And so you, you cry out for uh, salvation. You cry out for rescue. You cry out for the, the, the record of Christ to be imputed to you. Oh God, that you would look upon me and not see my sin, but would you see the perfect righteousness of Christ that I'm clothed in by faith? Satisfied will you be when you crave the imputed righteousness of Christ because God will surely apply the, the work of Christ to your heart, praise God. But both of those two forms of righteousness that we've just talked about, uh, personal righteousness, imputed righteousness, are highly individualistic. It's not bad, but, but it's not... It's not complete. We know that the kingdom of God has widespread implications as it advances to every nation of the world, slowly but surely. 
so you could refer to this as social and cultural righteousness or widespread righteousness, that a, a present form of widespread righteousness, wholeness, rightness, justice would spill out of the people of God, out of the church and into the world as the kingdom of God grows like, a, like yeast in a lump of dough, as Jesus taught. And there's warm for this. The word dikaiosune is the, the term used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, uh, to translate the Hebrew term tzedekah, tzedekah, meaning deliverance or salvation, which is really this Hebrew idea of God putting things to rights, uh, putting the world to rights. So this is the longing that justice would roll down and righteousness would be done everywhere in the world like an ever-flowing stream. In other words... Righteousness is not only the behavior of the disciple, but the decisive action of God in exercising his justice in the world. This form of righteousness captures the promise of Jeremiah 9.24. Remember, all of this is, is spoken of and written of on the backdrop of the Old Testament and the Old Testament promises. Jeremiah 9.24, I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness and justice and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. So satisfied, blessed will be those who hunger and thirst, who crave widespread righteousness in the world. You, you look around, you read the news, you see, you see mass shootings, you see war, you see injustice, you see pain and poverty, and you, you crave, you desire, you hunger for God's righteousness to be manifested in the world. That as the church actually makes an impact in the world, that our love of neighbor actually makes an impact in the world and spreads, that, that more people would be brought into the shalom of God and that he would, he would work his righteousness in the world. And some of these horrible things that we see would start to get untangled through the power of the gospel. Satisfied are those who crave widespread righteousness. So that would be the third form of righteousness. We've got personal righteousness, imputed righteousness, widespread righteousness. But of course we know that the full righteousness and right living and wholeness of God will not come about until we receive the consummated kingdom. It's been inaugurated now in Christ in his first coming, and it will be consummated in the future in Christ's second coming, when there will be no more tears, no more sadness, no more injustice. Jesus will come again. The king will come again, and he will establish his kingdom once and for all when he makes a new heaven and a new earth. This would be eternal righteousness, eternal righteousness, that future eternal state that Peter says is the home of righteousness, reflecting the promise of Isaiah 65. See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered. Be glad and rejoice over what I will create. So satisfied, blessed will be those who, who crave God's consummated eternal righteousness. You pursue righteousness personally, always looking to Christ for imputed righteousness uh, before a holy God. And, and that righteousness spills out into the world and starts to make an impact. But ultimately, we know that God's eternal righteousness, where all, everything sad will be made untrue, is awaiting us in that eternal state that is to come. And you crave it, you desire, you long for it. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, and put the world to rights satisfied will you be when you long for that day for it will truly come so is there a form of righteousness that kind of holds all these things together that ties all these things together a fountainhead from which all this righteousness flows 
there is. And it's God himself. It's Christ himself. God's own personal, unique righteousness embodied and expressed in his own son. The writer of Hebrews says the radiance of the glory of God is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. He is the righteousness of God. He is the righteous one that all of this is summed up in. Jesus will go on and speaking of thirst, will say that that if you come to me, I will give you a spring of water that will well up in your heart to eternal life. Speaking of hunger, he will go on to say, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Paul goes on to say that Jesus has become to us the righteousness of God. You want to know what righteousness is, what righteousness looks like, how righteousness works? Look to Christ. This reflects the promise of Psalm 11.9. For the Lord alone is righteous, and the upright shall behold his face. And we have beheld his face in the person of Christ. So satisfied, blessed, full of life will be those who crave more of Jesus. More than your own uh, life of righteousness, more than your more own moral activity, more than uh, the, the impact of, of the church in the world, uh, even more than the eternal state itself and the glory that is awaiting us, do you long for, do you crave for more of Jesus in your life? More of intimacy with Jesus, more of relationship with Jesus. Do you want to know him more? Do you want to see his face and hear his voice speaking your name? Oh, Jesus, would you give me more of yourself? Would you help me to know you and to see you? Would you reveal yourself to me? That's a prayer that he will always answer. Satisfied will be those who crave more of Jesus. He is the one that holds all of these forms of righteousness together. He is the source. If you think of a a pyramid, he is the top of the pyramid, the righteous one. And when we look to Christ and, and, and pursue Christ with all of our lives, he, he will grant us his imputed righteousness. He will credit his righteousness to us. That would be the next kind of tier in the pyramid. We pursue Christ, the righteous one. We receive the imputed righteousness of Christ. And then over time, we live out of that imputed righteousness, that new identity that we've been given as a gift, and we start to become who we are. We start to become more righteous. We start to look more like Jesus in whose image we were made. And so we start to walk in personal righteousness. You see, that's the next tier of the pyramid. And as we walk in personal righteousness, living out our identity that that we have received in the imputed righteousness of Christ, as we look to Jesus, the righteous one, we start to make an impact in the world, living as salt and light. People come to see the love of God and their lives are transformed. Communities are transformed. Families are transformed. Nations even are transformed. And we start to see the widespread righteousness of God work its way out on earth as it is in heaven. And then the very bottom of the pyramid, uh, which really has no end and goes on forever, is the eternal righteousness of God, which will one day fully take over in the new heavens, in the new earth. And so as you think about what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness, the encouragement is to hunger and thirst first and foremost for Christ, the righteous one. Receive his righteousness. Walk in his righteousness. Make an impact in the world bringing about his righteousness. Always longing for the day when his righteousness will be fully consummated in the new heavens, in the new earth. 
So how do we how do we pursue this? How do we how do we apply this? You could say how do we work up an appetite for more of Jesus? And I'll just give you one application point, and it is to fast. To fast. Traditionally, historically, the church has fasted. Jesus calls us to fast uh, later on in the Sermon on the Mount, to, to give up food, to give up these, these physical carnal appetites in order to whet our appetite for God, in order to, through the hunger pains, realize that we have a, a deeper need and hunger for God. And so maybe uh, it looks like fasting food, taking some time, a few days to fast food and to see what happens to, to your body, to your mind, to your soul as, as you experience your weakness. And you long for more of God and his strength. Maybe it looks like fasting a, a type of food, uh, sweets or, or alcohol. Maybe there's certain things that you rely on to sort of dull your senses, to distract you from the, the, the deeper longings in your heart that are maybe uncomfortable to sit with. But if you fast these certain things, it'll bring that to the surface and you can, you can see that, that that hunger and that, that dissatisfaction, even that longing is, is, is designed to drive you to Jesus and he wants to give you more of himself. Perhaps it looks like fasting something else like uh, social media or, or screen time, television. There's so many things that we do when we, we feel this inner longing, this inner hunger, and we, we go to these things to distract us, to take our minds off of it. What would it look like to detach from, from social media, to, detach, to detox from, from screens and see that all this time and this space and this margin that you have can be filled with, with prayer, with conversation with God, could be filled with, with walks around the neighborhood as you experience God's presence, could, could be filled with time in the word or time with brothers and sisters in the Lord talking about the, the ways that God has blessed your life fast. Pull back from all these other things to whet your appetite for the Lord and he will surely fill you. He will surely satisfy you. This is a promise. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. Jesus longs to satisfy your heart with more of himself. He longs to move towards you in love. His arms are always open. His, his eyes are always inclined towards you. He wants to move close to you. It's just a matter of, of opening yourself up and moving towards him in true desire. Truly, whatever you do, don't coast. If I could leave you with one thing, this is what's really struck me as I've uh, considered this passage this week is, is my propensity to coast, right? I just go along to get along. I got a lot of things I'm worried about, a lot of things going on in my family life, and I'm just trying to do the day-to-day. -day. I'm just trying to make it. But the Lord is calling me calling us to something deeper, deeper than all the present concerns that take up our attention. Don't coast. You cannot afford to coast. If you just coast in your spiritual life, your soul will shrink. Fasting, looking to Christ, longing for more of him, it enlarges your soul's capacity to receive more of God. Don't coast. Coasting will stunt your appetite and shrink your soul, right? Like, I love watching sports. There's nothing, nothing worse than a team that's lost its hunger, lost its appetite for victory, and that's just going through the motions. There's nothing worse than that. So look, we may not be the best team. We may not have it all together. We may not uh, run the right play. 
we may be a mess. Our, our families, our, our personal lives, our church may be a mess, but, but let it never be said of us that we weren't hungry, that we weren't hungry for Jesus, that we didn't crave and work to get more of Jesus in our lives. Don't coast, don't settle. Work up an appetite for Christ. He has promised that he will satisfy you and he will satisfy you with himself. Relationship with Jesus is what your souls were made for. You are what you eat. You are what you love. Pursue Christ and you will receive more of him into your life. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you have made promises that we can cling to and stake our hope in. You have promised that if we hunger and thirst for your righteousness, you will give it to us. You will satisfy us. Lord, it feels the, the opposite is true. That cursed are those who hunger and thirst for meaningless things, for they will never be satisfied. But Lord, if we can turn our appetite and our attention to you and crave more of you in our life, you will truly bless us and you will truly satisfy us. It's a promise. Lord, I think about just all the present concerns of life that all of us have. I pray that you would not let those things loom so, so large in our souls that we forget about what's most important, the deeper life that you're calling us to live. Help us to slow down. Help us to pull back. Help us to fast. Help us to work up an appetite for you and your kingdom. And help us to do it with confidence that you will truly satisfy us. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to give us more of yourself. We look to you and we love you. We ask that you would form us into your image this week. In Jesus' name, amen.